Welcome to Grow Her Women Worth and Work, where we're sharing experiences on the real triumphs and challenges women face in the workforce and empowering women with relatable stories from some amazing everyday people. We're your hosts, Angela Priest and Jasmine Silver, and today we have an awesome guest with us, Nat Smittable. Nat is a seasoned school, workplace, and college admissions consultant with a focus on DEI. In this episode, we'll explore Nat's thoughts on leading with empathy, prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion, and navigating microaggressions against women in the workplace. So Nat, welcome and thanks for joining us today. It's really great to have you on as our guest. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. So before we get into it, can you share your backstory with our listeners? Uh, sure. So I am the son of two um, proud Thai um, parents. Uh, and so my, my father grew up very poor, actually, in Bangkok. And I remember the first time when my, my partner and I went back to visit his childhood home, and he literally had dirt floors and kind of a, a makeshift ceiling. Um, and his house had improved a lot since, you know, when he was a young boy growing up. And um, yeah, they, my parents, you know, had different, different kind of upbringings. But, um, but I think my dad's has resonated with me because he's he literally is kind of the the rags to to riches story and that he came from literally nothing and um and has dedicated both my parents have dedicated their lives as as many in my culture and the Asian culture do like you, you know as a parent you you everything is for your kids and so that was never more true for than for my parents and um and he kind of worked his way up and they moved to New York City and um, I was born in, in Flushing, Queens at Booth Memorial Hospital, which is now a, a different hospital. Uh, and then they they bought their house in in Westport, Connecticut, you know, before I um, really kind of um, came back. So my parents were, you know, they were new to the country. And so they sent me away back to Thailand um, when I was a young, young baby. And so I was there until about two years old. And my grandma and kind of my some of my aunts and, and cousins took care of me as my parents tried to establish themselves in the States. And when I came back as a two-year-old, they had already purchased their home, um, a small, modest home in, in Westport. And that is where I spent you know, the vast majority of, of, of my childhood and, and growing up. And my parents still have that house. They still are there. And, um, you know, many, many years later, we, we, we I guess, uh, my, my partner and I achieved the Asian American dream, which is to buy a home right near your your parents house and so we bought a house <laughs> like three houses up the street from them which was our first house that we bought in in Westport and now we are we're about a mile away from them that was maybe a little bit too close um but no but during the pandemic we we were able to kind of get a, a larger house and we we were living in Brooklyn actually during the pandemic so there's a lot of things that you know I'm really grateful for for Westport and you know and it's it's surreal to be back in Westport you know, one of the things that we we are hearing from a lot of our guests is how big an impact their their growing up years had on who they've become and how they've been shaped. Not surprisingly, but you know, it's a, a nice common theme. Um, but you know, how did kind of your personal um, history kind of bring you on to the career path that you're uh -huh. on today, where you've got this focus um, mm -hmm. around helping women in the workplace? Yeah, you know, that's such a great question. And, you know, I think for me growing up um, Asian in Westport or other, right, non-white in a predominantly white, you know, you know, then kind of middle class, now more so affluent, you know, um, 
it, it certainly shaped my career path. It shaped my lens in which I see the world. You know, I, I felt very, very marginalized growing up. And I'm again, I'm so thankful for everything that has happened to me and and everything that has happened, you know, growing up in Westport. It was not an easy place to grow up in, uh, grow up as as non-white. But I didn't have the language. I didn't have the knowledge to kind of really express what I was feeling. And, you know, really, I, I, I think about it a lot because I think the way that it manifested as like I was one of those mean elementary, not elementary, but middle school kids. Like I was a mean kid. I just was, you know, and, and I, I have so much guilt about it, but um, I, it didn't, I didn't have the language to express what I was feeling or what, you know, what, what I was, I didn't have the, the terminology, you know, the same way that our youth today, you know, is, is so better equipped and not to say that it's any easier, but, um, but I think that that really growing up marginalized and feeling marginalized um, really set a path for when I went to college and I had such an incredible college experience that I then, um, you know, one of my first meaningful jobs was working for my college, working for my alma mater. And my job was actually to enroll, I was director of diversity initiatives. And so I was, my job was to enroll students um, that, that brought diversity to the class. But primarily I worked with a program that worked with low income kids, um, kids mm -hmm. that were Pell eligible that would come to the college, Skidmore College. Um, and it was an incredibly successful program. Uh, and even though I was from Westport and graduated, you know, and went to Staples, you know, when I remember interviewing for the job and, and they asked me like, hey, how, how can you, if you're, you're tasked with, you know, recruiting first generation students, you know, and, and I said, hey, I can never, ever know what it feels like to be black or Latino or to be low income. But I, I do know what it feels like to be marginalized and and I know what I want to provide. I want to provide, uh, you know, a sense of belonging that Skidmore provided me when I went there. And um, and it was certainly my favorite job was was that was the director of multicultural recruitment at, at Skidmore. I worked with incredible people. I am still friends with so many of the young folks that I recruited and I've kept in touch with them. And it's, it's certainly the most rewarding job. There's there's no doubt about that it was my first job in informal higher ed. I was, you know, teaching before that and I was I was a classroom teacher before that, but that was my first formal job in college admissions and I think my work now and, and how it relates to women and women in the workplace, I think it's all about wanting to achieve a, a better sense of belonging, you know, and, mm -hmm. and so um, I, I think that it, it all comes from, a lot of that comes from growing up in Westport and just feeling other and not feeling, you know, part of the, the center of gravity. Um, mm -hmm. which was a powerful force for me. You know, I think you brought up a really interesting point that part of um, enabling people to feel included, enabling people to feel part of, is finding those threads within our own experience sure. that make us relatable to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned that, well, well, I may not have these things, but I do have this other thing. And how can this this particular thing helped me have empathy for where um, they're coming from. Yeah. Um, because I think that that is an a really, really powerful factor of inclusivity of what are the, we may have a lot of differences, but what are the threads that help us relate and can yes. help us be more empathetic and help us be more about how, putting out a helping hand um, to, to other people to help that bring them in. Um, yeah. 
So, so one of the things that I find really unique about your experience experience um, as a male is finding yourself in sp professional spaces that are dominated by women. That is <laughs> that's kind of yeah. a rare a rare thing in our society. Um, so, how has that experience helped you as a man have more empathy for women in the workplace? Yes, that's a great question. So, I I mean. I am I am told that I am the only male PTA president in the state of Connecticut and maybe the second in a very, very long time. That's what someone at, you know, like the national organization or the Connecticut organization told me um, it has been, you know, a, a job, you know, in one of the I guess one of the hats I wear. Right. That that has just, you know, women and and, and those identifying the women have have. I guess gravitated to right, and for various reasons, especially in our area where um, there are some sections of of our town where you have you know one working partner and then one one is stay at home, and so maybe there's more time. And um, I've just been very lucky in my work in my professional life that I can kind of set the hours and I have a lot of autonomy in terms of when I can work. And so um, yeah, the, the the PTA hat that I wear and and kind of um, being an active volunteer, I, you know, I think there's maybe two or three other, you know, dads or males that that are, you know, active volunteers in the PTA. And so I remember saying early on last year, like, I'm keenly aware of like many, insta many instances in, in corporate world where, you know, men get all the credit and behind the scenes, there's like a, you know, there's women doing all the work and there's you know or or just other marginalized people that are doing the work and then maybe a man gets all the credit and I never ever want that to be the case but I think for certainly uh, you know I think about one time recently I was at a a work event and there was like a little bit of an icebreaker going around um that we had to start with and I was around the table with um all moms New York City moms like socialite moms and they're all <laughs> wonderful amazing people and um and there was a surprise icebreaker and we had to we had to say our our superpower at, you know before we started lunch and we had this beautiful location on the river and um really super awesome posh and you know out of my comfort zone right but uh, <laughs> and I was sitting next to one of you know one of my bosses who you know the the founder of our company and um and so I was to go last and so there was like 14 people that had to share their superpower and immediately I thought of empathy right and I've always tried to and I've learned empathy I didn't have it I didn't know that skill you know when I was in middle school or even in high school but that is a skill that I've built up and and but three other people had said empathy by the time it came to me and, and so when, <laughs> by the time it came to me I said my superpower was that even though I'm a dad and I'm a proud dad to my my two amazing children, I sometimes can play the role of mom. Um, and I was thinking of me as a PTA, you know, volunteer, me as, you know, driving my kids to practice. Again, I'm so lucky in my work schedule that I schedule, you know, my meetings, you know, sometimes like outside of the day where I can be with my kids. And that has been the the greatest luxury and and privilege of my life um, is being able to spend so much time with my kids. Um, so I think, yeah, just being around women, I think that college admissions is predominantly women, like readers. And, um, and, and so I think that there's something to, 
being marginalized, like, it's hard for me to not think about the pay scale, right? Like even in private schools, and I've been paid more for a role that, um, you know, a female counterpart would probably not make as much as I would, you know, in the independent school world. And so the, the discrepancies, I think, exist, you know, in higher ed, even though higher ed, we look to higher ed as kind of leading the way in some ways, but um, that is not lost on me. And I think that also brings a tremendous amount of shared experience of, of not feeling fully appreciated, not feeling the sense of belonging. So uh, that was a long way of answering the question. I hope I didn't yeah. sidestep it. Yeah, I think, I think some of what you're referring to is really about kind of microaggressions. And it's like without understanding, and, and you spoke to this because it sounds like you you kind of have played dual roles um, with your own children in in ways that are typically reflect our genders, right? And I I can relate to this because my husband and I fulfill very atypical gender roles. So mm. I go to work, he stays at home with the kids. Yeah. It works better for us. His skill sets work well there. Mine work well here. Um, but there are certain microaggressions that can come as a result of those things, or even things like not being paid similar salaries for same work. That's a form of microaggression. Right. Um, or kind of having somebody else take credit for the work that you've done and get accolades based, based on the work um, you get done. So it sounds like you have some exposure to that. Um, you know, how have you kind of handled when, when you see these microaggressions against women, mm. how have you spoken up or handled those? Yeah, that's, you know, I think some of what we're referring to as microaggressions, they have, we're so aware of them that they could almost be termed as macroaggressions, right? I've heard that term where, you know, the pay scale difference, right? Like we, we, that's been, we've known about that for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and even though there's like federal legislation with Title IX and, you know, to try to help with that, um, it's still not easy. You know, there's a, there's a whole new slew of research and, and applied methodology in what we call micro interventions, right? So when you see mm -hmm. something, do you say, you know, do you say, like, how do you say something? When do you choose to say something? I can't say that I'm always the one to say something as, you know, when, when it comes up, there are times where I might figure something out later and I'm like, oh mm -hmm. man, I, I totally missed an opportunity to, to, to be, you know, to be present in that moment. So even though I might try to live my life in this lens, it certainly does not mean I, I'm far from perfect. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think that part of it is, I, I mean, I, I remember one school that I was consulting for, um, it, you know, it was an all girls school. And so we, we still use the terminology freshman um, and for, to, to refer to our ninth graders. And if you see like most elite colleges, um, have far, have long past used that term. They'll use first year. They'll, use, you know, most, most often you'll see that term first year. And, uh, and I, so I was, I was really kind of the first to advocate for trying to have a change in this terminology. And, we, you know, it'd be easy because we can go in and all of our student books and all, all of the course curriculum guide and everything is on, on Google docs. I can go in and just find the term freshman and replace it with first year. And there was surprising pushback <laughs> from that and um, from females, like from like, well, you know, the term, because I, I was explaining, well, when college started, you know, it was 
it was for males only and women were excluded. And so, and, and we often talk about, and, and, you know, one person who I respect highly was pushing back on like, well, it wasn't the intent, you know, at the time to, to, you know, to, I guess, marginalize women, right? The intent at the time was like, that was the terminology. So it's not, it's not hurting women now. And I said, well, you know, and I didn't push back at that point. I, you know, at this point, I, it was, I was like four days in to a new administrative role and I had, I had enormous power, but I also wanted to be able to work with, you know, alongside these people and I had to work. And, and what I, what I should have said in that moment is like, you know, intention is different than impact. Right. And mm -hmm. so, and that, that really is one of the big keys to a microaggression, like how you, how you categorize a microaggression is that oftentimes a microaggression is not the intent is not to marginalize someone, but the impact is that it does. It silences them in some way. And so I, I lost that battle. We didn't, you know, I, I won the battle in that every time I was speaking to the girls um, or, or my students, I would say first year. And I, and I would explain like, hey, when you go to college, like you, you will see like very few colleges will use the term freshman anymore. And right. And we just and I'm not saying you have to do anything or you I'm not forcing you to say anything, but I'm going to always try to say first year. Um, mm -hmm. And the, and I, yeah, I mean, it was I got pushed back and I, I did not push back at that, you know, at that point in the year, which was four days into, to, you know, to my consulting role. Yeah, I think what you're talking about. So I, I so I, you know, um, I'm a biracial woman, um, but I am white passing. And so I get faced with a lot of kind of microaggressions. A lot of times people view me as a safe space to say something that they know <laughs> that they shouldn't say um, in other company. Um, even though it's not true, it's, you know, if you look at how I look, I look like, hey, you you probably say stuff like this too. And it's like, no, 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 I, I actually don't. Um, and I think what you're talking about is that when you're the person observing it, sometimes it can be very, very difficult to actually speak up. Um, and what I really liked about what you said, Nat, is that sometimes for certain reasons, you might not be able to change it in the big way, mm -hmm. um, but you can change it in the small way. And that that idea of kind of micro interventions, right? So because of whatever institutions that exist, you can't make the leap straight to the end game all at once. Um, but what I've seen in my experience has been that when you start with that small step of just changing your own language, that is catching. Yeah. Um, and and it's catching because it's habit and and when you are able to get through to people because they trust you because perhaps you haven't pushed so hard on them yeah. um initially sometimes you're able to change things in even bigger ways because it can the change can feel more organic um and it can feel like somebody didn't force you to make the change through whatever document or whatever thing but mm. you're just creating the change by through relationship by yeah. saying i'm gonna say first year i'm gonna allow i'm gonna plant the seed so you hear it you hear the representation and then you take that and maybe down the line you start saying first year mm -hmm. um and so i think that's so important that sometimes along with kind of your your point around intention is different than impact which i think is wildly important 
um, because I think that separates the judgment from it, right? I can mm -hmm. assume positive intent from you while also understanding that there's a negative impact to it. Those two things can coexist, but we often treat them like they're mutually exclusive, like you mm -hmm. can't have one without the other, like it's always this bad intent. And that's not reality. Most people, <laughs> and some people might disagree with me, most people are inherently good and they want to be good to others and they want to be kind and all of these things. And so sometimes if you can just push the needle, you know, in a small way, a lot of small things add up to big impacts. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, even though perhaps you didn't have the exact impact, you know, if you get just one of those girls to change the way that they're talking about it, maybe mm. they're going to get five more people to change the way they're talking about. And each of those five people is going to get five more people. And, mm. you know, that that ecosystem impact can wind up being very, very big. It's so true. And yeah. I also I, I also think it's important that, yes, it may make a small impact, like you said, and affect one or two people, but it takes the burden off of other people or the marginalized people to have to say something as well because you're an ally and you're piling on and you're helping to say it so i feel like in that sense it also helps you know sharing that burden yeah great points so so, so um if you had one piece of advice to give to employers or yeah. professional environments that are looking to increase the diversity, particularly of women on their teams, what would it be? Oh, well, you know, this is a tough one because I think initially you have to want that diversity, you know, genuinely, authentically, right? And if it's just, to, you know, for the optics, it's, it's probably not going to work. And I think once you recognize that you know that diversifying your team is going to increase outcomes then i i think it becomes much easier right and so i think where we are right now um it's imperative you know to have diverse teams you know gender and, and ethnicity religion and especially in the global marketplace uh, it, it, it's hard for me to you know because i i think that there's going to be a lot of companies that just don't see that as necessary um, and maybe there are some areas of the United States or in the world where that is not going to make a big difference in terms of what they're doing, whatever they're producing. But for the most part, the, you know, the companies and the brands that I that I interact with, you know, the diversity piece is, is such a big part. So I don't know if I have an advice other than, you know, other than, you know, do it for the right reasons. And and if you want to. Right. Because I think if you're doing it for you know, oh, like we have to do this for the optics or, you know, our marketing team thinks that we need to do this. Like it's it's going to fall flat, you know, and um, and it probably in the long term is going to be a disservice. So really, if I had to say one thing, you know, it's do it for the right reasons, but then figure out like I, I hope that they could all do their research and figure out that, yeah, when you have a diverse team and you, you, you're going to have you're going to have better outcomes with, with whatever, whatever business you're in. Right. And so. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, that's a tough question because I wish I could, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm trying to rationalize with irrationality, you know, if they don't <laughs> see that already. And that's, that's hard for me. So, it, yeah, I think it's, I think, um, you know, the more and more cases we get where you can see that diverse teams perform better. So I know there's statistics out there that show that, um, 
uh, companies that have women on their executive teams tend to outperform those who don't by 20% or more. Like that's huge. Um, And I think, you know, calling attention to that and making it more and more visible as more companies bring greater diversity into their leadership circles and and onto their boards and into their companies, I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think at some point there will be a tipping point Mm -hmm. where it, you know, the exception is a lack of diversity versus the rule. And I think it's just going to boil down to the economics of it, as icky as that. (laughs) Right. No, that sounds, but but that's how, yeah, that's how businesses run. Right. And so as that, the economic benefit of diversity becomes more prevalent, I think we'll see more and more of that. So with that, Nat, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our readers with? Oh gosh. No, I mean, I, I was selling, Jazz in our, our conversation before that I'm so proud of the the B core certification, um, you know, and that seeing, you know, the companies like uh, we love, I didn't know about B Corp certifi- certification until probably uh, a year ago, um, where one of one of the companies that I interact with a lot is Athletic Brewing Company. It's a it's a non-alcoholic beer. It's made in Connecticut. Yeah, it's um, they've been really supportive of me and kind of my past athletic adventures and um and so I'm one of I'm an ambassador for them but they I learned about B certificate B core certification um you know when I was hanging out there and I'm you know I think that this is another reason to diversify right if you're if you don't believe in this I I, I know like my generation I'm you know in my late 40s now and I think the younger generation cares even more about it not that my generation doesn't care about it but Jazz you're, you're right and like the younger generation cares about that more. So if yeah. you're a business, you know, look into B Corp certification because it it signals that you are doing the right things. It, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you have everything figured out, but it signals to your consumers, to your clients, to to whoever you're trying to, you know, work with that you care about this stuff. And again, it's not just the optics. And I think B Corp is, it's enough of a, you know, of, it's not that you can't just do it for optics. You have to really be in it to yeah, kind of get that certification. An so, effort. Yeah. So I would love for people to know more about B Corp certification. You know, we've tried to really interact more with brands that, that are, you know, in, in terms of like when we have to be a consumer, you know, we, we absolutely heavily, heavily rely on B Corp certified companies. Um, and it, it makes yeah. it, it matters to us. So that's the only thing I would add. And I'm, I'm so proud that you, your companies are, are, are B Corp certified. So really, really proud of that. Thanks, Nat. Thank you. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you, Nat. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it really has. And so that brings us to this, to the end of this episode of Grow Her, Women Worth and Work. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Nat, for sharing your journey with us today. And and I know some of this stuff, you're, you're talking about your own vulnerabilities and where you come from. And I think that's so helpful and powerful to share with people. So we re- really appreciate you spending no. the time with us today. No, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you both for sharing your vulner- vulnerabilities and your, your personal journeys on this call. 